a Cleveland Jewish News production. I was raised by a mother who was the most accepting, loving of people and creatures of all kinds, of all backgrounds. And so what I just wanted to make very clear to them is that, you know, my mom's case did not deserve any more or any special attention than any other homicide in Cleveland, but it did in fact deserve attention. And so did every other case. During the early days of the investigation into Elisa Sherman's death, her daughter Jennifer didn't have much interaction with Cleveland police. The Justice for Elisa movement was crystallizing around the idea that they could press for more, and soon they would start to get more. I'm Mike Butts. And I'm Sarah Shookman. You're listening to Eliza, her story at 10 years, a Cleveland Jewish news podcast about Eliza Sherman's life, loss, and legacy. Welcome to part two of episode three. Mike and I are both journalists who for years have reported on Eliza's story. In part one of this investigative episode, we revisited the crime scene and looked at why many of Eliza's loved ones have raised questions about her estranged husband, Samford. There's only a short list of people who knew about Elisa's whereabouts when she was attacked. We'll get to that list in a minute. But let's start with what Elisa's loved ones were doing as the Cleveland police got to work. I know at some point early on, they did connect with us because they brought me back some of her belongings to my home. They gave me back rings and a pair of earrings. Most of those things still had blood on them. And that was that was kind of it initially through the funeral. You know, and they said they were doing their work and you know, this was a, a new area for us, unfamiliar territory. Um, you know, on the one hand I think we thought, okay, like let them do their work because this will be solved in a few days. So we we had to trust the process and we wanted to respect the their time and their work. But on the flip side, you know, we had no idea what to expect, what to do. Um, there's no guidebook on, you know, how to interact with law enforcement after your loved one is murdered. Days passed void of information. The nothingness Jen and friends of Aliza's experienced grew more and more frustrating. I think we just kind of learned as we went, and that's when we started calling. We never would want to jeopardize anything related to the case. On the other hand, you know, nothing was happening. There were no new announcements, no you know, nothing that appeared to be progress. And so I think it was similar to kind of my mom doing what she could in her power to advocate for herself. I I think we took it upon ourselves. It was kind of a, a dual purpose, one to ensure that we were doing everything in our power. And also it gave us something to focus on. It lit a fire under us and gave us a, you know, a reason to advocate and, and fight for, for my mom when she couldn't use her own voice to do it herself. On April 9th, 2013, funded predominantly by family and friends, Mary Fuhrer and Jan Lash went to Erie View to announce reward money, $25,000 worth. Here's Mary. I figured people like money. So if they see a big reward, they would step forward. 
Crime Stoppers gives you an initial amount of money towards an arrest. And then I went to friends and I asked and we raised, we got it up to $50,000. In August, Jen too went to Erie View to announce that reward had doubled. In September, they put up a billboard a few blocks away with Elisa's photo, that 50 grand reward and the Crime Stoppers phone number. Well, I know Jen's Uncle Ed, he pledged quite a bit of money himself. And then, you know, people, $1,000, $500, and it added up. And then someone, this wonderful angel out there, gave us another 50000 anonymously because really felt that Eliza was such an innocent woman that we need to get justice for her. That was in May 2017, and it brought the total reward to $100,000, one of the largest rewards in county history. All this time, they too were calling investigators, demanding updates. Here's Elisa's daughter, Jen, again. It was out of the ordinary to have a family maybe be so persistent and to maybe inspire an entire community to call. I think at one point they were probably getting a lot of phone calls. They were pretty frequent in the beginning for a while. I think once um, Ed Tomba got involved, he, he kind of served as a liaison where instead of us calling anyone and everyone who would listen because we, we weren't really getting consistent responses or feedback. Mary remembers that first conversation with Cleveland Police Deputy Chief Ed Tomba, whom you met in part one of this episode. I have to say, I called him and he called me back, and it was very funny because at the beginning, we really didn't trust a lot of people. There, it was very scary. We didn't even know if Jen's life was in danger, and maybe mine, because I was like putting my face out there and doing all these different things that somebody wanted to get rid of us, you know? So you didn't know who to trust, but we talked on the phone and we said to each other, I said to him, do I know I could trust you? And he laughed and he goes, well, how do I know I could trust you? (laughs) But from that day forward, he took every one of our phone calls. He took all the time to be present at our events. He gave us, so much of his time and energy and help. This is Tamba. There was numerous calls to the chief's office from Mary, Jan, and other people in the community that, you know, were demanding that, you know, we make an arrest. And, you know, they were very close to the case. They they knew and they were all convinced. I, I, I'm still not convinced that he wasn't involved, but that, you know, Sanford was involved. You know, Elisa was their friend and, you know, she was the, uh, you know, she was the abused wife and, uh, you know, she was seeking to get out of a, 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 a terrible marriage. We started talking and I told him, I said, you know, we all want the same things. While whispers surrounded Sanford, a different man became the focus of the investigation, Elisa's divorce attorney, Gregory Moore. After all, she was trying to meet Moore when she was murdered. You may remember from episode two that Elisa hired Joe Stafford, 
of the Stafford & Stafford law firm when she filed for divorce in 2011. He was known as an aggressive divorce attorney, which is what Elisa sought for her anticipated showdown with Sanford. But in March 2012, Stafford was disciplined and suspended by the Ohio Supreme Court. Oh, she wanted him because he was a shock. He was an absolute shock. He was known. And, and she knew that fighting Sanford needed a shock. That's Elisa's friend, Karen Chait. She remembers it well. Elisa got stuck. She was referred to Stanford by a friend of hers who went through a divorce. And, um, you know, we tried to find her another divorce attorney, but at that point she had no more money to, to pay for it. She went through, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. As a result, Aliza's case remained with Stafford and Stafford, but fell to Moore. And it was Moore who requested the meeting that brought Aliza downtown that fateful Sunday. She was standing outside the door, texting him to let her in. He eventually responded and told her he was there. He never unlocked the door. And before she could walk back to her car in the cold, Aliza was stabbed to death. The morning of April 24, 2014, more than a year after she was killed, the investigation zeroed in on Moore as FBI agents raided the Stafford & Stafford Law Offices. The FBI Violent Crime Task Force, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation Cybercrimes Unit, and Cuyahoga County Sheriff's deputies all contributed to the search. Moore wasn't practicing at the time. Months earlier, in December 2013, a grand jury indicted him in connection with a bomb threat made in July 2012. Cuyahoga County prosecutors accused Moore of calling three county employees July 10, 2012, and telling them a bomb would explode in the old county courthouse on Lakeside Avenue. The building was evacuated and searched. No bomb was found. Jen's attorney, Adam Freed, remains perplexed by Moore's actions. What attorney does that? I mean, that's another just wow moment. An attorney who, who's supposed to be prepared to try a case or to go into a final pretrial and he call and, and supposedly, at least, at least as I understand the conviction, was doing calling in bomb threats or calling in threats to uh, uh, essentially make it so he doesn't have to go to a final pretrial or a pretrial or something like that. It's just awful. The motivation for bomb threats seemed to have been an alarming lack of preparation, akin to pulling the fire alarm in school to get out of a big test. Eliza shared concerns with her friends and loved ones that Moore may not have been prepared in her case either. Well, you could tell from her, her emails that she sent and wrote, she was very unhappy with what she was getting with Greg Moore. He was not prepared at all. I mean, imagine you're set for trial on something so important that's eating your life, eating your your mind all day long, and you're not, and, and you're with an attorney who's not ready. And then and the tragedy if they went to trial and 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 and, and lost because it, because your attorney wasn't ready. Elise was very concerned that that there wasn't preparation or, or, or a process about how to 
try this case. I mean, I don't, I've never learned whether there were exhibits ready, the things that you'd have to have filed or should be filing to be prepared to try a case. You could take a whole jumble of information and throw it against the wall to a judge, and that's not very effective litigation strategy. It's what Moore hasn't done or said that holds Ed Tomba's attention. He definitely uh, knew that she was going to be there. I kind of put myself in a situation working down there. If I had an appointment with somebody, and it was on a Sunday afternoon, and, um, you, you know, police, fire, EMS all went to that scene with their lights and sirens on, very loud in downtown, um, I think I would be a little concerned as, hey, I was supposed to meet somebody. I wonder what's going on. I would have, you know, walked downstairs and at least looked around and say, you know, what's going on, whether it concerned me or not. But I, I think, you know, that was it. And that, you know, that, uh, um, that didn't happen. So I, I make no, you know, no accusation. But um, I, I, like I said, I do have some questions and I do uh, those types of questions and uh, actions or lack of actions, you know, concern me. In January 2016, Moore was indicted on charges related to the investigation into Elisa's murder. These were the first charges made in connection to the case, and they came just two months shy of the three-year anniversary of her murder. All told, Moore faced 16 charges from Cuyahoga County prosecutors. Seven of them were connected to Elisa's case, tampering with evidence, telecommunications fraud, possessing criminal tools, two counts of forgery, falsification, and obstructing official business. The other nine charges were related to three separate bomb threats he made to Northeast Ohio courthouses. Phone records, key card data, and witness statements gathered by investigators show that on March 24, 2013, Moore left the Stafford and Stafford office an hour before Aliza was murdered. Remember, Aliza had been texting Moore to unlock the doors at 55 Erie View when she was attacked. Those same records show that Moore didn't return to the office until an hour after police responded to the scene, all while texting her, asking why she didn't show. He was elsewhere. Her attorney, Gregory Moore, is one that, you know, the only one that's ever been charged in connection with this case. And he lied to you. He did. Yep, he did. There's no, uh, you know, no doubt about it. Um, but like I said, he, uh, he afforded the, he exercised his rights that are afforded to him by the Constitution. And uh, he said, as an attorney, and we're not talking. Moore initially pleaded not guilty to all charges, but more than a year later, in May 2017, he struck a deal. He changed his plea to guilty on three charges, two related to the bomb threats and one related to Elisa's case, in exchange for the remaining 13 charges being dropped. The charge related to Elisa's case was a misdemeanor charge of falsification related to his whereabouts the day of the murder. Moore was sentenced to six months in jail, three years probation, and 350 hours of community service. 
Jen fought back tears as she addressed the court during the sentencing in 2017. She told Judge John Satula, quote, Greg Moore had 1,522 days and countless opportunities to aid in seeking her justice since her vicious death. Yet instead, he's admitted that he lied to law enforcement about his whereabouts and continues to sit here today without explaining himself or sharing what he knows. Moore addressed the judge too, quote, Your Honor, there's not a day that goes by that I haven't regretted the decisions that have affected a lot of people's lives in regard to people who are with us here today and people who aren't. I apologize to my great family, my wife, my parents, my in-laws, and my 18-month-old son. I apologize to all of those who have been or could have been hurt as a result of my conduct. I do want to point out that this man never apologized to Jen. This is Elisa's friend, Mary, again. In court, he apologized to his own family that he hurt, but he never apologized to Jen. And he begged the judge for him to, have, to be lenient on him and not to give him any jail time. And I think that's a real coward, in my opinion. The Ohio Supreme Court suspended Moore's license about a month later, in June 2017. By December of that year, he'd filed with the Supreme Court to resign from practicing law. No one has heard much from him since. Multiple attempts to reach Moore were unsuccessful, but when his wife was reached by phone, she declined to connect us with him. But we aren't the only ones with questions. Investigators visited him in the Cuyahoga County Jail where he served his sentence to see whether he might be willing to talk. He wasn't. Moore's overall lack of cooperation doesn't sit well with Ed Tamba. Like I said, there was only a couple people that knew where she was at and what she was doing there. And I think, uh, you know, and they're not cooperating with us. So um, my, you know, my deduction is if you do have a conscience or you do, you know, know something that, you know, you should, you know, you should come forth and you should be forthcoming. It may have been Greg Moore's right to plead the fifth, but that doesn't make it morally right, says fellow attorney Adam Freed. I, I really can't speak to the silence of, a, a, of an attorney who owed a duty to his client to help her and be prepared for a trial to then refuse to say what he knows about her whereabouts or doesn't know about her whereabouts. I understand, you know, citizens have a Fifth Amendment right, but speak up. But say what you know. If you had nothing to do with it, say what you know. Fast forward to 2023, and now... There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. It's the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. BCI's forensic lab is a sturdy brick building in a well-manicured office park in Richfield, Ohio, about 23 miles south of Cleveland. Near the intersection of Interstate 77 and 271, it's surrounded by the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. And on a sunny spring day, the setting is serene, safe perhaps, for the uniformed officer carting in banker's boxes of evidence. 
In appearance, the BCI lab is far from the scene of Elisa Sherman's murder, but it's now at the heart of the action. In 2021, Cleveland police requested BCI's help in investigating three cold case homicides. In addition to Elisa's investigation, BCI took over the cases of Stephen Holton, a Cleveland Clinic anesthesia tech, killed at a bus stop in 2014, and Ryan Dixon, a 22-year-old who was shot inside his car in 2016. Today, we're at BCI for an interview. Everybody level's mm-hmm. good? We're good, yeah. yeah. Roger Davis, special agent in charge of investigations at BCI, and Lindsay Mussel, special agent in BCI's cold case unit, now run point on Elisa's case. And, like many others, they want to solve it. How badly? Well, the number of texts I get at between <laughs> 10 and midnight from everybody involved in the, in the team, yes. Um, there, there's, a, there's a huge desire to reach a conclusion to this case. We're all very passionate about this case and any other case that's on our work list. Um, this case is no exception. Yeah, we, we really want them to get solved. There's families waiting. We understand that. BCI, which is overseen by the Ohio Attorney General, reviews cases only at the request of another investigative agency. Its involvement can vary, but for Elisa's case, Cleveland police essentially relinquished all investigative direction. However, there's collaboration between the two agencies, including investigative work conducted by CPD, and there's constant communication. BCI adds fresh detective work and modern forensic techniques to the equation. I think the biggest thing that we have is we have the dedicated staff and resources for it. Cold cases um, or unsolved cases, either way you want to say it, uh, are very taxing on a department. Um, A lot of law enforcement is understaffed as it is, so dedicating personnel or resources to cases that may be older in age, uh, I think that's one of the biggest benefits we have, as well as obviously the laboratory facilities in our criminal intelligence unit as well. BCI's cold case unit has formally existed since 2020. At any given time, it's investigating about 150 cases, homicides, sexual assaults, long-term missing person cases, suspicious or questionable deaths, and cases involving unidentified remains. The common thread? All of them present challenges the requesting agency couldn't overcome. So what's the biggest challenge in Aliza's case? Time, uh, the age of the case, um, it's been 10 years. So I'd say that's um, one of the biggest hurdles is trying to gather those puzzle pieces that we may or may not be missing 10 years later. Time can be a blessing. Yes, technology changes, people change allegiances, but it's predominantly a curse, especially when it comes to data. The kind found on surveillance cameras, in our phones, computers, or other devices. We know with data specifically that data is um, overwritten or deleted quickly. Um, And once it's gone, theoretically it's gone. You know, cell phone companies only, their retention schedules might be a year or two, or for text messages, maybe it's 30 days or something like that. So um, you're definitely um, at a disadvantage 10 years later when you're trying to piece some of that together if you didn't have it originally. 
Even with such data, what happens at BCI isn't like what you watch on CSI. Cases require extensive review of documentation, files, and records. And in Elisa's case, that arrived by the truckload. Special Agent Davis likens the process to putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if these cases were easy to be solved, they would have already been solved. Um, and that jigsaw puzzle, it, it, it's almost, you know, maybe a used jigsaw puzzle, too. Because for one, I don't know if I have all the pieces, but then I, if I do, I have to put those pieces together. Puzzle pieces still come in. Though when we visited BCI in May, the last tip received via Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County was a few months ago. And frankly, the agents don't believe at this stage in the investigation, there's a magical clue that will crack the case. Not like on TV. But as they've seen in other cases, changes in relationships and changes of heart often result in new information. The tempo for her case has been set by some information that had come in previously. Um, a lot of times our cases are driven by maybe a new lab report that comes in or somebody had called and said, you know what, my best friend's dad said this to me 30 years ago. I want to meet with you and tell you about it now. So we do get some of those things that can spur activity. Um, we never know what it's going to lead to, if it'll be short-lived, it'll burn out quick, um, or if it's something that requires a lot more follow-up. Um, but usually each case has sort of the cycle where those things will happen. Um, so even if a case isn't being worked every day, eventually something's going to catch. And they just keep having these cycles, and hopefully you catch it enough that you can see it all the way through. So it's, it's I guess, has it been worked on in the last month, or is it really dependent? It's been worked on today. Okay, today. Yep. Right. And it'll be worked on after this. Gotcha. That day... The day in May when we visited BCI, they held an in-house roundtable discussion with BCI crime scene investigators, laboratory staff, forensic experts, cyber crime staff, and representatives from the Special Victims Unit. They hold one of these discussions every three weeks for Elisa's case, and those specialists each bring their expertise, experience, and methodology to the conversation. You know, Lindsay will come with perspectives that I never would have thought of. You know, I may come up with ideas that they wouldn't have thought of. Or many times, you know, we'll also sit there and come up with the same conclusion about something. And then we utilize all of that, you know, moving forward with our investigative plans. It's a lot of back and forth, too, of what do we know three weeks ago? What have we learned since? How does that fit to what we knew? Where do we need to go in the next three weeks? So it's constantly shifting that back and forth um, to see what facts you have. Uh, what you didn't, what you got now, and what might make more sense if you look back and maybe use that to help guide where you need to go next. While it might be reassuring and even encouraging to know Elisa's case was reviewed the day we visited BCI, the fact remains that no suspect has been named. Special Agents Davis and Muscle wouldn't tell us who they've interviewed, including when asked specifically about Sanford Sherman and Gregory Moore, citing the ongoing nature of the investigation. Is Sanford Sherman a person of interest? I would say in any case where there's, you know, a domestic partner related to a homicide, uh, law enforcement, 
even the media, everyone's going to look at that person. So, I mean, I'm not going to say he's a person of interest in the case. He's obviously someone that we, we have to show did or did not have involvement in this crime. So he is a part of your investigation? He is a part, absolutely. I mean, obviously, he's he was the husband, so we, we will certainly be looking at him as part of the case file. Have you spoken with him or had any conversation with him since BCI took the case? I don't know that we're going to say who we have and have not interviewed. How about Gregory Moore, if I ask you that name? Um, obviously, he's the only person that's ever been charged sort of in connection with this case for lying to investigators. Is he someone that you guys have had interaction with? I'm not going to say who or we have not talked to, but, you know, much as you're formulating ideals in your head as well, it's the same situation. Obviously, a domestic partner, someone that's had involvement, you know, we'll do that with any cold case, you know, or unsolved case. We're going to look at it just like we just got this case. This is this is a new homicide to us. And we're going to go down that pattern and, and that investigative avenue of who who could have involvement. As we told you in the first part of this episode, when we spoke with Sanford Sherman about this podcast, he declined to be interviewed. Ultimately, it's BCI's goal to have the case reach a prosecutorial conclusion, as they call it. In other words, they too seek justice for Eliza. But Special Agent Muscle stresses that takes time. The families struggle with the loss of their loved one, plus the time that it takes, um, and that we understand that and we recognize that. And when we're doing these cases, we're doing them correctly and starting at step one, and that takes a lot of time. So the families that are waiting, we just thank them for their patience we're getting there. Um, it's just, it, it is a process and, and we understand each day is difficult for them. Um, and, and that's not lost on us. When BCI took the case in 2021, Jen called it a step in the right direction. After all, in the hands of Cleveland police, eight years had passed with seemingly no advances in the case. From the outside looking in, little has changed in the two years under BCI's watch. But Jen thinks or hopes there's progress being made. I have to believe there is. You know, they say that they're actively investigating. You know, I hear little bits and pieces and I choose to, to believe because I guess I won't accept otherwise. You know, clearly I'm pretty persistent. And so, you know, we'll do whatever it takes to see that, you know, the person that did this is held accountable no matter how long it takes. And I think standing here today is a, you know, a true testament to our commitment to seeing justice for my mom. Still ahead on episode four of Eliza, her story at 10 years. We'll look at how that commitment to justice now extends beyond Eliza. In 2023, Jen started a fund in Eliza's honor to support survivors of violence in an ongoing way. There aren't many people that want to talk about violence, but somebody needs to. And, you know, violence, you know, is what took my mother from this earth and tortured her. And that is definitely what I'm going to talk about, even if I'm the only one talking about it. Eliza, Her Story at 10 Years is produced by the Cleveland Jewish News. Executive producers are Kevin S. Edelstein and Jennifer Sherman. Today's episode was produced by Mike Butts, Amanda Kane, Deanna McKeegan, 
Cheryl Sadler, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by Amanda Kane and Deanna McKeegan and written by Mike Butts and me. Cover art design by Bella Bendo and Jessica Simon. Our theme music is Particles by Nobu. Special thanks to Megan Roth and Zoe Krantz. Additional music included in this episode is by Jimmy Svensson, Tammuz Dekel, Vortex, Kyle Preston, Matuma, Oakfield, and Yehezkel Raz. The reward for information leading to Eliza Sherman's killer stands at $100,000, the largest reward in the history of Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County. Anyone with information regarding Eliza Sherman's murder should contact Crime Stoppers at 216-252-7463 or 25crime.com. That's 25crime.com. Callers can remain anonymous and are eligible to receive a cash reward if the information given leads to an arrest or grand jury indictment of a felony offender. To learn more or support the Eliza Sherman Fund, visit give.ccf.org slash Eliza Sherman Fund. To read more about Eliza's story and listen to other episodes in this series, visit cjn.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.